G'day Legends Legendaries, welcome to another episode of Generation Get To It, a sugar hit of positivity and health for you to get the most out of yourself to inspire this generation and the next. Make sure you like and subscribe so you can get the latest episodes and also share the word so we can get more people out there changing their lives for the better. So for this episode I've got on Robbie Barker who is a great bloke and a strength and conditioning coach. We'll go more into his experience in the episode but some of the topics that we cover I believe are really important particularly if you're looking at building into something well, building yourself up into something that's going to be highly stressful also if you have kids teenagers someone smaller than you that is looking to get into contact sport we have a lot of discussion around neck strength and how that relates to concussions and how you can actually start implementing implementing these prevention protocols in from an early age we one topic i really enjoyed going into was actually how doing the thing that you are getting injured by or want to avoid and getting stressed about is actually going to be better than completely ignoring it. We speak about some practical strategies of how you can do it so that you can ensure you are doing it in the safest way possible and that you're doing it for the long term so that you're not getting injured and stressed and falling to bits in front of yourself. So get into the episode. It's really fun. I like it. Robbie's a great guy. Boom. Okay, g'day everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Generation Get To It. Today I've got someone slightly different, someone who I met whilst doing my master's degree, um, who I found had a particularly good, uh, strong passion for sports and performance, and in general was a very, very great, great bloke. Today we have Robbie Barker. He is a strength conditioning coach based over in Perth in Western Australia. He spent seven years in the industry working through Gen Pop also with um, athletes from all different various backgrounds in different sports. He's got a master of strength conditioning and he's done a lot of research into neck strength, concussion, and also the benefits of spending a, having a long-term approach to athletic development for the future of our, our kids and also for ourselves even as we grow up. So welcome to the podcast, Robbie. Cheers, Jordan. Happy to be here, mate. Awesome. So I mentioned... We, we met through doing our strength conditioning course over in Perth. I did find that you had a strong passion for some areas which I actually was not familiar with at all, um, particularly neck strength and concussion. And as some people may know if they listen to podcasts, I do jiu-jitsu and that's super important for me because I find I'm always going to really crook neck. And I've also had some concussions in the past too, which I don't really know if that's going to do me any good in the long term, but um, that's something I wanted to get into today. But first of all, Tell us a bit about yourself, why you got into industry and yeah, where you're at now. Yeah, man. So yeah, like you said, I'm I'm a strength and conditioning coach. I work at a facility called Ludus Sports Performance. So it's a funny name, but it's L-U-D-U-S. Um, and how I got into the industry, I probably came out of high school not really knowing what I wanted to do. And like many probably went for exercise science which was seemed to be a pretty standard pathway for anyone that sort of liked sport and didn't know what to do. I did um, the exact same feeling. So uh, I was like, uh, don't want to do physio. don't really want to do anything else, but I do want to be in didn't, sport. Didn't so. get the grades for physio. That was probably <laughs> a big one. Um, and <laughs> yeah. like, I think like many as well, like I had that ambition of I'll start an exercise science and go to physio and I'll fix this. But then um, sort of, ended up I, I don't know probably floated my way through undergrad I learned obviously learned some invaluable stuff learned how to research and study but then finished undergrad worked as a PT for a while at a PT studio initially and then at the Curtin Uni gym and then after some deliberation on what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go decided that I wanted to work with athletes um, and that's when I decided to um, go and do the Masters in Strength and Conditioning at ACU. I had a lot more direction and vision when going through that one, which was helpful, and actually knowing where I wanted to go. Uh, so that was extremely rewarding going through that. Um, and then, yeah, met yourself at the Masters toward the end of that second last semester, I think it was. I can't remember. Yeah, that last two that two weeks we had to do towards the end was just yeah 
banging out all the practical stuff after spending practice. about a year or so just sitting on uh on the books, on, yeah. on the on the dashboard on the yeah. uh, on the line yeah yeah i think we'd interacted a fair bit on the on the discussion, discussion board, board. <laughs> without knowing <laughs> what each other looked like so for everyone who's understand trying to figure out what a discussion board is, because they want everyone to be really practical in their application of like evidence and, and formulating arguments, they basically put you on a discussion board, put up a question, and your role is just to argue as as opposing yeah. to the other people as you could. So yeah, there was a bit of ferocity in there, and it's just quite funny to actually see everyone on the other end. <laughs> yeah. Trying to be trying to respectfully disagree. Yeah. <laughs> quietly quietly being a dick without being rude about it exactly man it was (laughs) it was an interesting format hey yeah and all you had to do was engage i don't think i don't think you necessarily had to be right you just had to engage that's all they wanted which was i don't know in in retrospect it was probably a pretty good pretty good platform yeah well it's interesting because like in in terms of that you you do tend to come up like if you've ever dealt with a client they've always got some kind of argument opposed to any any specific technique that you may bring across whether it's like exercise nutrition and your goal is to go i can understand where you're coming from but from what i've seen this is actually what i believe yeah yeah yeah, that's been a big learn learning activity for me is like dealing with objections and and learning to um just learning to make sure that people feel heard because if Mm. they don't if no if you're if you're objecting or arguing with somebody and you don't let them feel heard, then you'll never have them on side. There will never be a productive conversation. So, yeah, I know. Yeah. You, you learn things at uni that you don't necessarily realise you're learning at the time. Yeah, no, exactly. I understand that. Um, so what are you doing at, uh, at – oh, so first of all, you said that you mentioned you didn't really have an understanding of which direction you wanted to go into – until you started doing the master's course. Why Why was that? When, what was the confusion before you actually attended that course? Yeah, so I would say there was a fair bit of uh, lack of understanding of the industry, for sure. Uh, not understanding what is required to advance your career. Or progress in the progress in the industry, and maybe a a potential uh, I want a lack of willingness to to do the things like to sacrifice your time, work for free, um, yeah, volunteer. I, I think I was reluctant to do that as a already pretty broke twenty one year old or whatever I was, um. And job security kept popping up in my mind, you know. And then, so it was, it was, I think, I, I'm sure I'm not the only one, but it was sort of tossing up between X, Fizz and, and S&C. And I think uh, I've spoke to a few people who, who've had that, had to make that decision after, after undergrad, after exercise science undergrad. And it was pretty much like choosing between a clinical pop or a primarily cl- clinical population and, a, and an athletic population or a, um, a more of a performance-focused population. And I I did at the time, I remember choosing the, the postgrad and, and uh, identifying that the SNC industry is probably more um, competitive, uh, probably will require more volunteer work um will probably be a longer road but i was like it 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 should be worth it you know like the opportunity to work with work with populations that i'm genuinely who who play in sports that i'm genuinely passionate about so working in, in an industry that i'm genuinely passionate about it should be work worth it and I, if i put the effort in based on that that passion for it then it it should work out and and it it has to this point it's been going it, it started to pay dividends sort of as I was finishing the um, the masters and, and when I started volunteering my time, I think that was the big one. And, and yeah, it was, so it was between those two, but stoked with the decision in the end. Yeah. Good. Well, it sounds like you've gone through some of the hard yards, which to be fair, I, rec- I, rec- I think if you were to look at many different industries, you'd find a similar result in the fact that, 
although you probably don't have to do as many volunteer hours, there are there are a lot, there's a lot of grinding and, and trying to make sure that you're actually getting a good solid foundation before you start. So take, for example, like an entrepreneur, there's there's a lot of unpaid hours that go into being an entrepreneur and actually trying to get out there and and try different things and failing at, which in many cases is very similar to what we would have done, what we did when we were strength conditioning coaches, which is mm-hmm. going into a gym and seeing all these amazing different athletes out there and you're doing it all for free simply to get the experience before yeah. you can get a paid gig. And I remember doing a lot of stuff up. Uh, I think my first unpaid gig was actually at the Manly Seagulls and then also the Australian women's sevens team. Um, yeah, it was unreal. Well, they end up winning the gold medal just like yeah, that. No, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah, done. Yeah. Yeah, they're really good. But that was the thing, like you're just turning up there, just trying to learn and gather as much stuff as possible. And I remember one of the strength conditioning coaches said, because when I first turned up, I was kind of sitting back a little bit. And he's like, mate, you're not going to learn anything unless you start getting in everyone's way. Yeah. And so one thing I did notice from that is like just no matter what it is, just start immersing yourself in getting in the way of people. Like yeah. at the end of the day, your your thoughts about getting in everyone's ways so much worse than what the actual outcome is when you get in someone's way but most importantly like you're in there and you're getting into the the vibe of you feeling you're immersing up in it and yeah. i think that can happen with a lot of different things no matter what industry you're in yeah i that's that's super relevant or yeah very similar to my situation but even from even not even in a face-to-face setting man i think i was so frightened of treading on toes and being re- rejected that i wouldn't even send someone an instagram message like yeah. I, I, yeah. I was, I suppose, shy in that sense. And then, I don't know, there was a gradual realisation that I'm like, well, what's the worst that could possibly happen? I'm sure someone said something to me at some stage. Like, it was like, look, just... just some deep, dark trauma that's been hidden away. Yeah, I know. <laughs> terrible fear of rejection or feel like I'm bothering somebody. But I'm like... And then I, I I now reflect on it. I'm like, if someone was to, if someone in a similar situation was to ask me, I'd be I'd be stoked to to pass on some knowledge or pass on my experience. Or so yeah, I think that if if there's a piece of advice for someone um, trying to find their way in an industry, it's like yeah, just ask for advice. What's the worst that could possibly happen? Um, I can't remember where I heard this, but it was it popped up on Instagram or something. But it's like if you're if you're fearful that you're you know asking for someone's time and that they're not going to be willing to give it, literally offer to, to be like, hey, I'll pay you for an hour and just tell me what you know. Most of the time, they'll turn the money away, and they'll just be like, yeah, sure. It's just the it's it's showing intent. Be like, yeah, if we just sit down for an hour, tell me, give me all your 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 best pieces of advice on or or your story on how you made it in this industry. Um and and I think yeah it's a show of intent and people notice intent. Like um and yeah that was something I started doing after the after the masters and it it started to to pay dividends quite quickly. Yeah, just asking asking for help I suppose or yeah asking for knowledge or yeah advice. Yeah, good. I do agree. I think most people want to find the best way to deliver knowledge to people, particularly who care about the care about the knowledge that they have. I find knowledge is is given away quite freely, which is so important. And I do believe that there's a there's a little bit of everyone who wants to display as much knowledge to everyone else, whether that's like a ego boost or something like that. But more, I think more importantly, people just want to share share knowledge and actually inspire other people to. Do something that they've done that's similar because they've been re- personally rewarded, internally rewarded for that. Yeah, so yeah. I do think that, like I said, just asking the question and getting out there is really a great way to get people to spill the beans and what their experience is. And it's I I believe the best best and most effective way to learn is to teach. Yeah, 100%. yeah, absolutely, it's mutually yeah. beneficial, man. Yeah, um, the interns at work have been have been sure you provide benefit to them and that feels good to to teach somebody something but also reinforces your own your own um, knowledge and beliefs 
it's just like cool i'm learning to how to articulate the things that i already know so yeah teaching is a is a fantastic way to learn yeah absolutely one of the it's one of the goals of this podcast for me personally is i can help learn from the guests and then i can teach teach as well along the way just in in certain in certain aspects but on that let's go into what we we're talking about before about your work at Ludus. Uh, I'd love to know essentially who are the people that you're working mostly with and and what do you what is it what's the main goal that you have yeah. on a general scale for everyone? So I reckon 50% of our clientele at the facility are probably Aussie rules. It's a big Aussie rules area. I don't know, like Ryan and Tom both worked at Waffle Clubs. Ryan worked at a Aussie. Anyone, anyone wants to know what Waffle is? It's the Western Australian Football League yeah. <laughs> or Western yeah, Western Australia Aussie Rules. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. So, yeah, uh, Ryan worked at South Fremantle, which was quite a successful club for a long time for seven years or so as their head of high performance, or built his way up to the head of high performance. And Tom worked at East Fremantle. So I don't know. They uh, and a lot of our partnerships are with AFL clubs. But then, then we have a a bit a wide range of of athletes. So a fair bit of netball, as is obviously a very popular sport in the area and probably around the country. We've started to get a lot more combat athletes, so jujitsu and boxing. So we've got three or four jujitsu athletes and a couple of boxing athletes, some Muay Thai. Who else have we got? I've got a table tennis player, which is pretty awesome. A lot of lateral for him. Cool, nice. <laughs> yeah, they're unique. They're unique. I've never, too far, I've never met a professional table tennis player, but I yeah. feel like they would be someone you wouldn't know. You wouldn't see them as an athlete until you start seeing around the table and you'd be like, uh, oh my God, they oh, are shit. athletic. <laughs> Springy, man. And a lot of lateral and a lot of rotation. Yeah. 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 Nice. Move actually a lot. Um, well, you've got we quite a mix a anyway. Yeah. We also have yeah. a tactical program, which is pretty cool. So Tom, Tom, one of the directors, runs a tactical program, which is for SAS or for army guys going for SAS and coppers going for um, TRG, tactical response group. So he he trains them for that and does the particularly coaches the mental side of things and and also teaches them how to manage load because they don't they don't do a lot of that in the army and stuff in terms of managing load and trying to avoid injury so that's a that's a, a niche of of the company as well something that i don't have much of a hand in but um pretty cool to see and as far as the mindset side of thing goes they they sort of set the bar why do you think that what is what do you think is so unique about what they're doing with their mindset well, I, I, so as far as like a growth mindset goes in terms of challenging themselves to improve constantly, like the, the pretty much what Tom tells them at the start of their sort of um, membership, I suppose, is if you want to go for SAS or TRG, you have to train every day for a year. So it sort of sets the bar for them from the start. Um, and then they're, we talk about um, function, high, highly functioning, functioning and non-functioning individuals. And I believe this came from, I forget who it came from, but I, I think it came from a, like a um, Navy SEAL. I'm butchering that, but I don't know. Um, anyway, a highly function, uh, a non-functioning individual can't help themselves or others. A functioning individual can help themselves, but nobody else. And a highly functioning individual can help themselves and other people so they're all very aware of that concept and their goal is to be a big group because they all train together you know they, they do their like insane strongman circuits and stuff like just mentally grueling sort of <laughs> circuits they're hectic to, to watch i've never joined um <laughs> and um and their goal is to just be this group of highly functioning individuals that are constantly helping each other and constantly building each other up. So, um, so yeah, they're obviously their their goal is to be extremely mentally resilient so that they can tolerate both the the intake testing for their the TRG or SAS program, but also um, once they get in, obviously they're going to have to be 
extremely mentally resilient in those um in those professions um yeah i can't imagine what it's like but yeah pretty hectic probably, probably pretty tough you must love the taste of your own blood i'd say um yeah but yeah uh but on that that's i think there's actually some probably good lessons that you can take from that that training and translate into say the average athlete or even the average person like what kind of similarities would you find between say a successful athlete and some of those guys who are doing the training for their status mm. so uh, the first one's obviously showing up consistently that it sounds like a simple concept but showing up consistently they they do set the bar with that um but also i guess what tom really tries to teach these those at the, the tactical athletes in particular uh is the like valuing recovery um because that's something that they don't necessarily get taught and i think that that's what separates them from maybe their competitors i would i would say so um yeah valuing valuing sleep and the big rocks of recovery sleep nutrition um and you know i guess the the concept of uh performance is fitness take fatigue right so if you can if you can be the fittest but also the freshest on the day then then you'll succeed right um and i think those concepts which these guys in the tactical program uh applying can certainly apply to to an elite athlete the yeah i don't know the sleep one interests me the most why is that so if i i have this theory i've never it doesn't get talked about as much but i have this theory that although the most successful or the goats of their sport have to be good sleepers right like i reckon they're sleeping 10 hours a day plus well i remember matt fraser the most successful crossfit crossfit athlete or male athlete of all time he yeah. said the same thing he says yeah. they said what's your biggest secret and he says mate i, I sleep like yeah. better than anyone else in the game because he yeah. was doing the same thing he said he's sleeping 10 hours a night yeah. he was making sure that like he had his his nighttime routine so that when yeah. it hits a certain time he's you know just doing all these different things like whether it was like setting his lights to low or having his tea or whatever it was but just Good. making sure that he just smashed out his his sleep like it was the most important thing of his day yeah it's a skill and like any skill it requires practice and requires a lot of effort in terms of yeah putting a sleep routine together we we like have we put sleep routines together for our athletes and i i have my own sleep routine and when it's not going well you know like but yeah i think if i had like five minutes with a professional athlete or one of the goats like a, a Messi or a LeBron or something I'd ask about I'd talk about sleep like if I had if I only had five for ten minutes I'd, I'd talk I'd ask about sleep because like the whole you know how Kobe used to say get up at like 3 a.m and, and train and stuff yeah I call bullshit a little bit or at least he didn't <laughs> do it often at least he, he couldn't have done it often. He might have done it every now and then. There would have been the times where he's like, it's time to go, but I still reckon he was getting 10 hours a night. Yeah, well, I'd love to see that. Well, it'd be interesting to like, go back and to uh, ask, you know, who was around him that time to see if he was uh, was doing yeah. it. But um, big call, mate, especially uh, from the from one of the goats. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm sure he did it. I'm sure he did it, but I bet, <laughs> I bet he had a nap after. <laughs> oh, yeah strong napper that's an underrated skill being able to 100%. have a quality nap during the day 100 and they say that about the army guys that they can sleep anywhere and i'm like cool that if i'm going to take something from them like a practical thing it's like get really good at sleeping and just like mm. catching some sleep no matter when or where yeah i used to love a good nap um particularly yeah particularly when you're doing like early early mornings yeah. and you're starting say sometimes you're up at like five in the morning whatever yeah. all right the nap underrated but the only thing was just the timing like yeah. you just really needed to make sure that you weren't waking up feeling like you're in another dimension you needed to yeah only only get a certain amount which to me i think was about 20 minutes yeah right now i'm i have one nap a week so i have 
one split shift a week where I'm up at like quarter to five and then I've got the evening classes as well. So I sleep as soon as I come home from the morning classes and I'll, I'll try to sleep for an hour, but I wake up fresh as man. It's great. Cause I lose like an hour and a half, maybe two hours from waking up early. So I'm like, at least I'll catch up on an hour of that. And yeah, man, it's life changing. It's great. It's huge. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. I think it's cool seeing people like Huberman talk about it a lot more as well. Yeah. In terms of how you can optimize your sleep and why it is actually so important. I mean, it's quite difficult because for a lot of the SAS guys and people who actually want to push themselves to limit, because all their um selection based stuff is based on the fact that who can go the longest without sleeping and sleep still yeah. yeah, and still track it on. So mm. is there a line between like being able to recover really really well and get a really good sleep or is it that aspect of i need to practice every now and again just not being able to sleep for four to eight hours that's a really good question that's uh something that i actually don't know the answer to and i don't know if they train it hey they they do the they do the the more physical physically demanding training at my at at lotus um Mm. which is which I think prepares them physically for the testing tenfold sort of thing, you know, like some of these, these guys are ridiculously fit and specifically fit for the activities that they have to do in their, um, in their testing, like those pack runs and stuff where you're you're running three and a half Ks with like a 20 kilo pack and stuff. It's nuts in like stupid times, but yeah, the mental side of things and being able to tolerate, like sleep deprivation and um extreme cold and all that stuff yeah i i'm not certain exactly how they train for those and yeah um if because it's taxing man i i trying to find the the time to not sleep for 48 hours around a job as well like they're working too so it's like how do you train for that or do you just like sort of get to the situation and be like try to take confidence from the other mentally grueling things that you've done leading up and be like, this will apply here and I can stay up for 48 hours. You wouldn't want to do it often. No, definitely not. But I think there's something in that in the way that you said that it's all about leading from the experience you've had because it's the same with, with everything, whether it's like training or nutrition or anything or you know, like I said, learning the ability to sleep is that it's a whole bunch of just experiences you've had along the way just practicing that same thing constantly Compounding. yeah yeah exactly and i think particularly yeah. when it comes to high stress situations so if you want to look at those guys in particular and you can relate it to sport because that's a very high stress situation hmm. like you don't just you don't you don't become a physical beast and rock up to say an afl game hmm. and perform really really well it's like the hmm. fact that you've been playing since you're three years old and you mm. learn how to kick a footy and then you start yeah. playing in front of the crowd. Exposure, and before yeah. You, yeah, before you know it, you start playing rep footy and you've got a few more people who aren't actually parents and, and siblings at the game. Mm. And then it just continually exposes you to more and more people or to a higher, higher stress level. But for you, it's it's completely normal just because you're there. So I imagine yeah. it's, just, it's very similar in just building, if you want to build some mental and physical resilience, it's just compounding stresses continually on top of it one another until eventually yeah. become this really rigid soul. Yeah. And that's where that, uh, that mindset is everything, right? Like I'm, I don't know if you listened to that recent human episode on my, on growth mindset. And so he talked about growth mindset and also the stresses performance enhancing mindset. So um, trying to keep it as brief as possible. He, talked about the research where they told one group of people that stress is good for you that it's performance enhancing and you'll be better for it and told another group that stress is bad for you that you should avoid it and it's going to kill you early and both statements equally true but the stress is performance enhancing group excelled and their performance um improved and the the stress is detrimental group their performance deteriorated purely by how they were given the same tasks, but purely by how they perceived a stressful environment um, influenced how they responded to it. And I think that that's what these, these the tactical athletes at Ludus um, approach their training. They're like, cool, this is 
this is good, this is really hard, like this is a great opportunity as opposed to, fuck, this is really hard. I really don't want to be doing any more this anymore. It's going to be, this is killing me. Um, and it sounds super simple, but yeah, how we how we deem a stressful environment genuinely changes how we react to it. We can be more analytical in a stressful environment. And rather than focusing on how much it sucks, you'd be like, cool, this is a great opportunity. How am I going to cap it? How am I going to really um, nail this situation? And you can think about the task and think about the processes in order to, to fulfill that task. Um, and I think that, that that applies to to those tech guys. It, it applies to, to athletes, but it applies to, to everybody. Anybody with a stressful life, which is practically everybody. So, um, so yeah, that, that stress is performance enhancing mindset is something that I, a lot of my self talk is around that particularly in stressful scenarios. Hmm. I remember one thing I actually started doing with a couple of teenagers I'm coaching at the moment is I got them to actually write out their strengths and weaknesses. And then I've, I've used them to, give them a general awareness of the fact that we all have strength and weaknesses mm. and that there is actually a, a positive twist you can put on, on your weaknesses because a weakness doesn't mean that it has to be a bad thing. It's just that it's just the the lowest rung that you can kind of grab onto. So that means mm. that when it comes to creating that like positive mindset or, and being able to, like I said, have a growth mindset, mm. I think, I think it really helps because I found that at the, at the start, they're quite nervous of, understanding that they that they are have have weaknesses and that you know so they'll continually just put themselves down and put them in a place where they're thinking like they're not good enough but mm. in actual fact as soon as they started recognizing that oh i didn't nail this drill properly or i didn't hit the time that i wanted to that it just means that i have extra room for improvement and then i have a, a stronger challenge ahead of me which ultimately will leave you as a better person yeah and that belief that you can improve at something like that's in a in a nutshell, that's pretty much what a what a growth mindset is: is the belief that you can get better at something, right? So, if um if we view a task, and that's what pretty much motor control and like neural plasticity is, right? So if you if you view a task and you're not uh, necessarily very good at that task to begin with, if you then view that task as an opportunity or that skill is an opportunity to, to get better at something, you're not only getting better at that thing in isolation. By You're improving your ability to be adaptable. Every time that you get better at something that you're shit at, you're improving your ability to be adaptable. So that, sure, you're, you're getting better at that thing, but you're also, you can, that both, that literal physiological change in your brain, that neuroplasticity, you're increasing your ability to be adaptable. And that goes back to the, the LTAD stuff, um, long-term long Long-term athletic development. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I realised, as I said, the acronym. <laughs> um, the, it's such, uh, such a long word. It's, it's so much easier like when you're yeah, speaking to another. Mouthful. Like I'll say S and C a strength conditioning coach. It's a lot easier just yeah. to uh to rattle off these terms because um yeah, they can get quite a mouthful. Well, you think you're saving time by saying the acronym, but then you lose all that time when you go on to explain the acronym immediately out. <laughs> yeah. Um oh, what was I saying? So the with the LTAD. Yeah. So oh, and that's like that concept of um early childhood diversification versus specification and how we encouraging kids to challenge themselves in several different ventures, not only sport, but several different ventures will increase their ability to be adaptable. And when they do eventually specify in a sport, they will be more adaptable in that sport. And the analogy I like to use is like, um, you know, how do you know who Scott Pendlebury is plays for Collingwood? Yeah. yeah. He's yeah. been a legend of the of AFL for a long time. And everyone always says he's got the basketball background. And I always think of that. Like, it's a bit of a joke at this point. People always like use it facetiously. But um, I like it because basketball teaches that like that perception and that that ability to react to a, a stimulus that you in tight spaces sort of thing. And then as like a 
as a midfielder, Scott Pendlebury look, makes it look like time slows down sort of thing around him. And, and I'm sure that comes from his his background in, in playing basketball and, and whatever other sports he he played as a kid because that that diversifying at a young age when your neuroplasticity is pumping um, will just increase your ability to be adaptable. And then when you do specialise in a sport, you're more adaptable in that sport and in just life as well. Um, cool concept. Very right. cool concept. Yeah. 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 Well, another cool concept I wanted to get into was definitely the the your research around or your knowledge around neck strength, mm. because as we're on the topic of contact sports, and like I said, I do jiu-jitsu, which is a pretty physical sport, particularly on your neck, because you end up getting a lot of chokes and you get 100%. twisted into pretzel in 3,000 different ways. But yeah. like what is something that we need to be aware of and we with strengthening our neck or just in general when it comes to contact sports what do we need to be aware of that we may be missing at the moment yeah so i'd say the biggest thing that we're that so when i started researching it the biggest thing that i learned and the biggest thing that i realized that we're missing when it came to neck strength training to like prevent concussion was velocity so adding velocity to the movements right so if the analogy we use is if you're if you're training an athlete to be powerful and move with velocity. It's like, as we move closer and closer to competition, our training becomes more and more specific. Therefore our velocities go up, our loads go up, our volumes go down. The same applies to the neck, right? So if your activity involves high velocity movements where your head's at risk, then we should really be training the neck at higher velocities to have like high rate of force development to produce tension quickly in response to a stimulus that you've not had for a very long time. So, because I would say all concussive incidents, I can't really think of an instance where you'd get a concussion without velocity, right? Mm, I remember my first one, I think I ran straight into a pole. Um, I would say that was oh, pretty high velocity. <laughs> they don't move, man. <laughs> yeah. I know, I couldn't, well, I've had a few I think that one that, the last one I had I was playing rugby and I just got I was getting tackled and I just went head straight into the ground and just absolutely destroyed myself but same thing the they've all been like, at speed they've all yeah. been at speed yeah so to go to the crux of it all concussion is is brain trauma mild traumatic brain injury is all the concussion is so the so when i'm explaining this to to my athletes is because like they're like oh i've got a bit of a knock on the weekend um i've I've got a bit of a headache i don't think i'm concussed though i'm like okay let's think of this if you get punched in the arm and your arm hurts that's trauma like it might not be very bad trauma but it's trauma if you get hit in the head or in the body and then your head, you have a headache afterwards and you didn't have the headache before, then your brain has collided with the site, your skull and you have brain trauma. It might be mild, but that is all a concussion is. So those instances, so just like associating concussion with like, it, all, 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 all I'm getting at is that it doesn't take much to get a concussion. Like the amount of times a, a rugby player or a footy player would come out of a game and go, oh, I've got a bit of a knock, I've got a bit of a headache. And like, unfortunately, you're probably concussed. And it was these sort of realisations and watching particularly footy because that's my my main sport, going through the Masters and trying to choose like a, a review article topic I was watching this. I was watching footy, and I was seeing guys getting knocked out and guys getting um, suspended for for actions in the game, um, and guys, yeah, being having to retire due to concussion. And I was like, "How? What is something that we can do to prevent these injuries happening without completely losing the identity of the sport in terms of being a contact sport?" Because that's the only way to to eliminate risk is to to make it a non-contact sport. Even then, there's a little bit, but um, that's the only way to really eliminate risk. So I was like, how can we reduce risk? And then I was sort of looking at helmets and I'm like, cool, helmets don't really do anything. Um, because 
And then the more I read about it, so concussion is um, the mechanism of concussion is head acceleration, right? So that's why you can get concussed from whiplash without even hitting your head on anything. It's just you have a rapid, re realistically, a rapid deceleration or a rapid acceleration if you're still and someone hits you and your brain collides with your skull. So I was like, cool, what can we do to reduce head acceleration? And that's where next strength training, um, that's where next strength training started to, to crop up. And then I was seeing the, the more traditional sort of forms of neck strength training, which is like the, the isometrics initially, very simple. You would have seen them. And then just like the, the chucking a plate on the head and doing nods and stuff off the edge of a bench and that. I was like, sweet. But then the more I read about it, the more I read about head acceleration, I was like, okay, the, what was popping up was that, that yeah, adding velocity to movements and adding, adding perturbation to movement. So perturbation is pretty much um, unanticipated contractions or uh, contracting, creating tension or contracting a muscle in response to a stimulus that you've not had for a very long time. Um, so a really good example would be like attaching a band to your head, like a, 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 an elastic band and getting someone to shake it around and you're having to respond to that. So that would be, that's like sort of, if we think of it, so I've written like programs, if we think of it on a, uh, in a periodized sort of sense, that'd be toward the end. Right. So, cause that's highly taxing, highly taxing on the nervous system because it's reactive. And as we know, like high velocity movements fatigue very quickly. So as as is the case with um that is still the case with with neck strength training as well so that if to answer your question the biggest thing that i think most people doing neck strength training is missing is velocity and then and and reactive or unanticipated contraction because that's the stuff that we need to prepare for okay so if someone wanted to start doing some neck training today would they start with doing that velocity based work or is it somewhere somewhere else along the the path that you'd start with and build so, up to there so i always start people with isometrics for a, for a number of reasons so building building capacity building a base level of strength but also there's quite people get nervous around the neck for, for good reason you've got a spinal cord in there and there's not a lot of not a lot of structures protecting it so yeah. valid so we always start with with isometrics to build to build capacity, but also build some confidence. So strength capacity, low loads, high volumes, long contractions, you know, 20, 30, 40 second contractions. And then I normally progress to either eccentrics or just full dynamics, just um, with the iron necks handy, because you can like the you can you can rotate and then you can do tilts and stuff, which is which is pretty cool. The iron necks like it halo thing with a almost like a carabiner which is on a it spins around so you can just attach a cable to it and you can you've got a lot of degrees of freedom so yeah we go from like isometrics into dynamics we might do an eccentric block beforehand um and then we add velocity but anticipated velocity so you'll be i don't know if you've ever seen this on my instagram or anything but you'll do a um like a broad jump when attached to to a cable which is attached really to yeah. actually i know i did see one of them this morning um yeah. some bloke was jumping backwards actually that was that was me i recorded that was it? i wasn't the bloke but i was recording it oh, um, there you go. yeah so he was doing the velocity block so he would do like a broad jump forward so training his flexors then like a lateral bound training his lateral flexors and then like uh not that you'd do this in an athletics scenario, but we're just preparing the neck to deal with velocity. You jump backwards um, with the band pulling from here. So you're training your extensors. Um, and then he also jumps like he spins because he's got the iron neck on. So he jumps like 90 degrees at a time. So you're getting that rotational component as well. And all that's doing is learning to produce tension quickly. So that's just like, rate of force development being able to not only produce a lot of force which we which we train during the isometric phases and the the the, the dynamic phases like full concentric eccentric so that's that like max strength but then the the velocity block is learning uh rate of force development because there's if you think about like the 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 uh the power lifter and the weightlifter 
Obviously, the powerlifter can produce a huge amount of force. Their rate of force development is probably not that great. And then um, a weightlifter or an Olympic lifter has extremely high rate of force development. They can move loads extremely quickly. So that's sort of the another analogy you can think of is like it's learning to, to move the load or produce tension quickly. And then even quicker than that is with the, the perturbation stuff or the, the reactive stuff, chaos. And that's the that's the really specific stuff that's going to prepare you for for strikes if you're in a contact if you're in a combat sport, uh, but also for um, getting hit at a stoppage and and learning to go into a a potentially dangerous environment or a, a, an environment where you're at risk and being able to to produce tension subconsciously it needs to become subconscious in order for it to be effective in sport. That's why it's like coming from all over, and we also do it with our eyes closed and stuff to make it even more reactive. So uh, making sure that it, if you, you're going into a stoppage or about to uh, going into a dangerous scenario where you might get hit, you don't know if you are, but you are prepared to or you're already producing tension through your neck, which is stabilizing your head and is going to, if you do get hit, you're going to, it's going to reduce the amount of head acceleration that you have. And there's research for this. This is sort of what I, what I did that paper on and I did like a review article of all those papers and they measured head acceleration in a group that did no strength or did like basic isometric strength training for the neck. And then they looked at a group that did um, uh, perturbation training or that reactive neck strength training and the head acceleration from unanticipated uh, external load to the head, like they drop a pulley unexpected, the displacement of the head for the, the perturbation group was less than like the isometric group. Okay. Cool. So, so yeah, all in all reducing that amount of velocity and in, in the individual to prevent their concussion. So what's the, what's the youngest age you start with say the isometrics? As soon as you're playing, as soon as you're playing. Yeah. If so, you're playing, if you're playing a combat, a contact sport or a combat sport, I'd want to be training that neck as soon as you're starting or if not before, Hey, like if you're, if you're old enough to be in a concussive, uh, be in a potentially concussive scenario, then you're old enough to to prevent that concussion. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So there's something to say about just starting as early as possible with that kind of stuff, mm. especially, I guess, when you're putting something like an isometric, which is a very low load that is super safe for the individual. Yeah. yeah. That's it. Like appropriate loading, like in all youth athlete scenarios like in all athlete or anyone that's lifting appropriate loading right like it's just like give them give them something that they're capable of doing any any kid can hold an isometric just be like be a statue for me <laughs> like, <laughs> like do your best statue <laughs> um and they'll sit there for a bit i'm like yeah so yeah i i haven't had I don't have many young contact sport athletes. Most of our young athletes, like we've got some tennis players and we've got soccer players. That's valid. Soccer, soccer players get I think so, soccer would be really good because, like yeah, I said, yeah. it's just getting hit in the head and having that mild trauma of the brain. Like there's some, 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 some of those balls get kicked pretty, pretty, pretty hard. And for those, if you're, if you're like nine, 10 years old, you don't have a strong neck. <laughs> Well, they're, they're, they're raising the age of, of headering the ball, which is a tricky one. Like, because obviously you get, you, you do get conditioned. The more you train something, the more you get conditioned to it. So are they going to hit 10 years old and then start headering the ball and probably still get concussed anyway? So are there well, ways? To yeah. be fair, they'll, they'll be kicking the ball a lot faster and harder when you're getting to yeah. that age. Yeah. It's so, like they're, going, it's like they're yeah. not tackling as a, as a young as a young footballer or a young rugby player, it's like, well, should we not be teaching kids how to tackle so that when they do get to, to when they are bigger and stronger, that they can tolerate those forces or they, yeah. sorry, that they know how to tackle, they know how to brace in, in response to a tackle. Yeah. Teach, well, I see I, that I as, as like, I see that as like, if you're going to send your kid to high school to learn math and during private school, they haven't, done any work with numbers they don't even know what a number is yeah you know like they're not gonna be prepared for 
when there's actually problems and it, and it feels come quite up. avoidant, right? Like it's it, yeah, it it doesn't feel it feels um yeah not not very proactive. I think if maybe if they were um like no heading whatsoever, it's like no, we can like we can throw a ball like a, a meter and like teach them how to head the ball, teach them how to produce tension and also train the neck in the same at the same time. So there are things that we can do that will genuinely prepare kids to header a ball or how to tolerate tackles. Like if if someone taught me how, like, you know, just like pummeling, I'm talking about tackling now, like pummeling yep. just side to side. Every kid tackling ever should start with that, even like on the knees. Just learn. I'm, I'm sure you did it in rugby. They, they seem to teach tackling well in rugby. They don't in Aussie rules, eh? I did notice that when I went, because I played both, and I found that going to uh, going to footy or AFL, there was just the tackling technique was horrendous. Yeah. And you'd find that if you're a rugby player going to play AFL, you could just run straight through people because yeah. they didn't teach that technique. But with that pummeling drill, which is essentially, I guess, just like a wrestling against your mates with a yeah. chest against each other, yeah. is that um, that was a warm up every single day. Yeah, yeah so just learning to get a head out the way. Like, mm. Mm. yeah, just. Head to hip, right? Like, yeah. Well, just, that's it. And and something when it comes to tackling, they taught in rugby, both rugby's rugby and in rugby league, is that yeah, you're getting ahead to the outside and you're trying to get it into a safe position. So, for a lot of times, when you're actually hitting the tackle, you're keeping your head. So when it fall, when you fall down, it's going to be on the top of the player or sitting yeah. on the backside. So it's actually the softest part. Yeah. Whereas if you're nervous about tackling and don't know how to do it most people tend to to lift their chest up and try to get the head out of the way which in fact is putting your head at a higher risk of getting either hit by a shoulder or a knee or another head so i find like that's one of those things i'm a perfect example of that dude like um and it just becomes this negative feedback loop right so you don't know how to tackle you go to tackle because you're you know excited and you're trying to help your team you don't know how to do it, so you're like this. You get hit in the face or you get concussed. You're like, I don't want to do that again. And then you go into – then you probably don't tackle as much as you should. And then when you do go to tackle, you're you're doing exactly the same thing as you did before because you're now frightened because you've been hit in the face a bunch of times. And it just becomes this negative feedback loop and you never learn how to tackle. Like I only started like paying attention to my tackling technique as like a 25-year-old. I'm like before I was just like, I don't know, just throwing my body at people and hoping that it's stuck and getting getting concussed and getting hurt most of the time. Like it <laughs> it it needs to be taught, like as a as, as an injury prevention. Like the the most dangerous incidents in a sport are the ones that need to that people need to spend the most time on rather than avoiding them. I think that's the, probably the big takeaway. Yeah, I remember um, there's actually this great analogy, which was, I can't remember which World War it was, but there was during one of the wars, I think the US ships, uh, US airplanes were coming back from, from, from Germany and they were coming back and they were, had all these bullet holes through them, right? And to some people are studying, they're saying, oh, we need to start patching up these bullet holes because it's going to be the best way to protect the plane. And one of the scientists actually said, well, shouldn't we actually be protecting the parts that aren't shot by bullet holes because the ones that were shot in those particular areas weren't coming back at all? Mm. So yeah. when it comes to, say, looking at, say, kids getting injured through tackling, right? So it's saying, should we cut out tackling or should we work more on the thing which we know is actually causing the issue? Sure. So therefore, it's actually going to prevent them from being injured in the future. Yeah, 100%. And it's like, if we're not tackling in game, then... Like if that's what it needs to be when they're young, then it's because it's it is less controllable. Of course, that might have some validity, but it's like sure you might not be tackling in game, but it should be like there isn't a curric- there isn't a curriculum for junior sport, but maybe there should be. Um, but it's like you you are learning how to tackle at training constantly all the time, even before you are introducing tackling uh, at um, in game. Because sure, the game, the game, and I can understand how people are like. I saw my eight-year-old kid get knocked out at Oz Kick. It's like, yeah, that would not be nice because it's an, it's, it's not a, it's, it's a chaotic environment. 
it's like cool maybe we don't tackle as maybe we don't do full tackling at that age but we're we're you know all it is is like starting with the 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 two players are very close to each other so there's no velocity just learning how to pummel and just slowly increasing the distance apart that they're that, that they're running each other running at each other from like just slowly increasing that distance because eventually yeah you're going to be running full speed and you'll want to be defaulting to the tackling technique that you learned when you were right next to each other um yeah i've given that a lot of thought and wish wish that i had that opportunity as a kid that would have been cool might have been a better footballer but also oh well <laughs> yeah, we all say that though yeah yeah if only <laughs> if only yeah i would have if only wasn't injured that one time when i was six yeah that's right no. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no uh i think that's a really great solution and i'd love to see you implement it more and obviously more coaches start taking that initiative as well when it comes to prevention but to kind of wrap things up more towards the end here because i've really enjoyed this conversation i didn't expect it to go the way that we did but i've actually really enjoyed all the topics we've gone into because i think there's a lot to be said about what we're talking about at the start in terms of stress response and mental resilience and then also injury prevention especially when it comes to juniors in sport and even leading into seniors but one thing i really wanted to ask you that I ask all my uh, guests at the end is what was something that stuck out for you personally when you were growing up say in your family or something you learned along the way that you'd love to pass on to the next generation so your kids nieces nephews what's one thing that you'd love to to put up, to share back to the world one thing just one okay it's probably coming from my mum and it's a it's so what mum would always say when people were not necessarily being very nice or there was some there was some bad news on the news and it was all looking very cynical she would say i still hold the belief that there's significantly more good people in the world than bad people and obviously that's a subjective opinion and what good is and what bad is is um it's kind of irrelevant here it's just like you if you go into each scenario giving people the benefit of the doubt and finding the good in people then then i don't know your outlook will inherently be more positive i think that was one that that mum used to always say that was that has applied um as as when i was very young but also i just remind myself of regularly throughout my life that there's there is more good in people rather maybe the better quote would be that there's not more good people than bad people there's more good in people than bad in people i reckon uh, as a as an average that was probably the main one from mum mm. yeah great um really positive um thought there and i i think it uh, pays homage to your personality because you're you're a very kind soul and you do do care a lot about people and um yeah definitely noticed that uh yeah when we got along it was and with you with everyone else is very you definitely see the best in people which i think is so underrated because thank you bro. like i said at the very start if you were told this is good or this is bad you're probably going to see that from the outset so i uh i really like that i appreciate that brother thank you well good um so if anyone wants to get in touch with you or see what you're doing out in the world like like i said absolutely i've uh, I've seen lots of in- Instagram videos of you, which I find really beneficial, particularly if you want to learn more about next strength and also long-term athletic development. Mm-hmm. So where would people find you and what's what's next? Yeah, so like my my strength and conditioning um, Instagram handle is strength coach Robbie, which is where I pretty much post all of my SNC related stuff. Um, and then a lot of my content and a lot of the stuff that I put out is also on Lotus, Lotus Instagram. So that's Lotus underscore sports underscore performance. So L-U-D-U-S. A Lotus is like a, was like a gladiator gym back in Roman times for anybody wondering. That's what that is. But, um, but yeah, that's it. probably <laughs> the best places if you, if you want to get in touch or you can't read my article anywhere because, well, you can. You can read it in the ASCA journal, the Australian Strength and Conditioning, but that's a private journal. You can't. 
unless exclusive, you're a member. exclusive members. Yeah, I know it sucks. Right. I'm like, you can't find it on PubMed. <laughs> Um, I don't. I don't even know if I'm on there anymore. I, yeah, I think well, I've disappeared. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fair enough. It's it's has a lot of upkeep, but yeah. um, if anyone wants to read it, you can just hit me up. I'll send it to you. Fantastic, uh, awesome. Yeah. Right, well, thanks again for coming on. It was an absolute pleasure, and there was so much to take away from this one. So, thanks again. Cheers, Jordan. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. Eh? So, thank you for listening to the episode. I really well i don't don't know there's a lot i can take out of it but the last bit in particular is probably the one that i get out of most people's episode to be honest because it can just can relate to so many different things in life and like most things we all have these endeavors we, we go after whether it's sport or business and and just different aspects of life but all in all we're 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 humans and we have our life should not be defined by that one thing we're doing but by the actions we take when we're not doing that thing so I really enjoyed how he spoke about the fact that he thinks positively about more people and that there is just so many things that we get caught up with in the news and such, but all in all, there's so much more positive people than there are negative people or positive things about each other rather than negative things. And I just think it's something we should always continue to remember, even when someone's being an absolute dick. So um, no, loved his work. I thought it was great. I'm going to start implementing the neck strength stuff now, particularly because I do contact sports still and I get a sore neck. So definitely going to take a lot out of this episode and start putting it into action straight away. Make sure you reach out and email me and connect with me so that you can actually start asking more specific questions you want to know and also so I can get some cool guests as well to add to the list that we've already got. I am absolutely loving how this podcast is going and looking to build further. Thank you. Until next time.